The Earthcare Fieldcast. A show about how we build collective power across ecology and care. A very warm, hopefully not too hot, welcome to the Earthcare Fieldcast. It's the summer of 2021. We are somewhere between a global pandemic and a global climate breakdown. And we are here to think with you about struggles across ecology and care. We are very excited to begin this journey. And um, in this first episode, we will be sharing the two core concepts that move us in this project. Those are earth care on the one hand and field casting, a nice little word that we have invented on the other hand. Um, these terms allow us to grapple with the ecological crisis and the care impasse in ways that allow us to learn from practices and think about how we build power collectively. And today's episode um, correspondingly features a conversation with Stefania Barca, a feminist researcher and comrade engaged in the Care Income campaign uh, who has recently published the book Forces of Reproduction that talks about earth care labor. And we will also be featuring a conversation with Tobias, a worker from the Solidarity Agriculture Project Ochsenherz in Austria. This is an example of a field cast, as it's a conversation recorded in a vegetable field, where Tobias will be telling us about community-supported agriculture and um, what kind of horizon that is for um, social reproduction and building networks of collective care. We, the makers of this podcast, are myself, Manuela Zechner, and Bue Rübner Hansen. We are long-term partners in care and crime. Thank you, Manu. Um, before we go into the interview with Stefania, uh, we want to briefly give thought to the different uh, extreme weather events that have, that have happened in this uh, in the summer of 2021, uh, the summer of the Northern Hemisphere, that is. Um, and those include uh, sandstorms in China as well as floods there, um, cyclone in India and Mozambique, uh, extreme temperatures in the Pacific no Northwest and forest fires as well, um, fires in Greece, Turkey, Albania, Italy, Ukraine and elsewhere happening now, including in Siberia. Whereas in other, other parts of the world above the polar cycle, we've seen temperatures uh, going above 30 degrees um, closer to where we are, which is in Vienna, Austria, we've seen unprecedented hailstorms and tornadoes close to the border uh, of, between Austria and the Czech Republic. So um, this is to bring to mind the people that are struggling and suffering and supporting one another at the moment, facing the different disasters that are unfolding around us uh, or the different disasters that they're living through. And of course, all these disasters raise the question of the urgent abolition of fossil fuels and the question of a transition to another way of inhabiting the world in common. So the reason why we talk about earth care is that this is precisely about the practices that allow us to inhabit the world differently, that allow us to uh, go through disasters uh, in a solidarious way 
as well as to survive the abolition of fossil fuels and provide another another way of living in the world. Um, starting with field caste also situates us on the fields of struggle between the people who are fighting to create practices of, of earth care. The earth in earth care very much points to questions of agriculture, agroecology, food sovereignty, which we'll be talking about a lot in this field cast, um, as matters of how we inhabit um, the world together, but also as matters of how we reproduce our lives in common, um, locally, but also in a global capitalist system. And then there is also the question of care in earth care, of course, um, which points to a paradigm of valuing all the invisible and life-sustaining labors um, that are happening on an ongoing basis. So it points to the question of work. Who does it? What is it? How is it organized? How is it valorized? But it also serves as an analytical device to think of other ways of relating. So here is where we speak about a care impasse. We think of a care impasse um, that characterizes the way that our lives are reproduced in neoliberal capitalism and um, This uh, field cast is also very much about trying to think and um, speak and um, listen our way out of this care impasse. As an impasse that concerns us as humans living in societies, but also concerns us as a species amongst many others on this planet. We're happy to present our short interview with Stefania Barca, who is a scholar in the environmental humanities with a strong and long commitment to environmental and climate justice. Since 2009, she's worked as a senior researcher at the Center for Social Studies at the University of Coimbra in Portugal, and she's currently a visiting professor in climate change leadership at the University of Uppsala in Sweden. Stefania is not only an academic, but also active in various movements, most recently in the campaign for a care income uh, that was launched in the early phases of the pandemic. So we're very excited um, to have you with us, Stefania, for this interview. And um, since you recently wrote a wonderful book um, that speaks about earth care labor, we wanted to ask you about this term or this conglomeration of terms, earth care labor. Um, could you maybe briefly explain to us um, where you're coming from with that? Yes, sure, Manuela. Thanks uh, for having me in this conversation. So uh, the notion of earth care comes from ecofeminism, from the ecofeminist movement and from ecofeminist uh, scholars that have written about it, specifically Carly Merchant has dedicated a, a book to it uh, with this title. And it indicates, uh, broadly speaking, women's activism in relation to different kinds of environmental problems. So earth care, uh, broadly speaking, is women's activism, women's environmental activism. Now, um, earth care labor uh, elaborates that perspective, uh, adding the, the labor uh, element into it. And this also comes from uh, uh, the ecofeminist movement and other other. Um, Uh, other scholars, other activists, like, for example, Ariel Saleh, that has write, uh, written uh, about how this uh, women's activism, uh, women's environmental activism, has to do with their work, with the work of, uh, of, rep of, of biological and social reproduction, or we could call it with, with care, care work. 
Um, so, and this is a notion that also uh, builds upon a feminist political economy perspective. So, the basic idea is that care work is is invisible in society; it's not even considered as work. And this applies to uh, to the work of of caring for uh, for the environment as well. So, this is what the notion of earth care labor tries to uh, highlight: the fact that caring for the environment is not just activism it's part of the work of reproducing humans because the two are connected uh, both on material and immaterial ways and our physical mental health our food our water provision uh, basically all the most important human needs presuppose um, access to a healthy environment that we need to take care of because otherwise this environment is subject to a number of degrading and depleting uh, forces that that um, uh, threaten our own reproduction, not only the reproduction of of the environment, and so, and so that's why hurt care uh, labor indicates the environmental agency of those people who are actually doing care work. Uh, now, globally speaking, we have to keep in mind that the majority of carers, of people who do care work, are low-income women and girls of color. Uh, and these are, uh, uh, statistically speaking, these are the, the, the population who still find themselves at the bottom of the social hierarchies everywhere, uh, providing many hours of unpaid work to support the reproductive needs of others. Uh, and so no surprise that these women are also very often at the forefront of environmental struggles aimed at protecting their access to clean water and or clean air or food sovereignty, etc., etc. So I think that um, we can say that earth care labor challenges this artificial separation between humans and nature because it highlights how the two are connected via labor, via the labor of reproducing life. So subsistence labor mostly, and you know, um, the, the, the work of tending to the most fundamental needs of, uh, of human beings. And this is what in Latin America, uh, the community feminism or decolonial feminism in Latin America, they call this um, uh, agency um, as um, this 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 kind of uh, yeah this kind of activism and also this kind of work uh, as uh, they, they have this expression of territorio cuerpo tierra which means the unity of land, body, and territory as uh, the, what, what, uh, um, what, what people are uh, defending when they uh, engage in anti-extractivist uh, struggles, right? So they are defending this, this nexus, this connection uh, between their bodies and their territories and, and the earth, Right. So I think this is an expression that very nicely captures what earth care, earth care labor uh, is about. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so, like you're saying, there's a very strong eco-feminist and also indigenous and, and rural, rural peasant dimension to, to this concept or the practices of earth care labor. 
So I'm interested in, in how that applies to uh, the European context in which uh, there are very few people working the land compared to what there has been historically and what there are in other regions of the world. Yes, absolutely. But uh, but we have to think we we have to uh, remind to remember that there is no shortage of grassroots environmental struggles in Europe and in the global north as well. Uh, we we are we are used to have um, an idea of environmentalism that is more like a middle class uh, urban uh, movement that is about the about saving some some nature out there which is uh, separated from the conditions of life and and work and reproduction of most of the of the population but this is not actually uh, a realistic picture if we look at what is actually going on on the ground in terms of who is uh, struggling uh, to protect uh, the environment environment and and why and where uh, then we realize that most of the struggles happen are are, are grassroots community um, organizations that um, that fight against uh, uh, mining for example no new mining projects for example in portugal there is now strong opposition against uh, 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 lithium mining because Portugal is becoming the European, speaking of Europe and the global north, we still, we also have mining frontiers, extractive frontiers in the global north and uh, the uh, lithium is becoming, uh, you know, the new, uh, uh, the new uh, commodity frontier for for the uh, for the post carbon transition, and people uh, are are, are uh, fighting against it because uh, the, it, because of the impact that lithium mining will have on their mode of life, on their communities, on their territories, and also on their um, uh, so the, on their reproduction, their health, on their reproduction of, of their own bodies and of their territory, but also on the activities that they practice as uh, local in terms of local farming. Uh, so, um, and there are, I mean, plenty of these movements all around uh, Europe against people mobilizing against in new infrastructures, you know, high-speed railways, polluting industries, toxic waste disposal, etc., etc. And this happens both in urban context and in uh, in rural areas as well. Uh, and, and 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 people organize by by all means, by legal means, uh, but also through direct actions or also uh, working on alternative um, alternative development plans. For example, the, the communities of uh, Taranto, the the city in uh, southern Italy, where there's uh, one of the big biggest and most polluting uh, um, steel plants in Europe, uh, they are also, they are not just um, mobilizing uh, against the, the, the factory as, a, as an important source of pollution and of um, uh, public health uh, threats for themselves and for the children especially, they are also um, uh, producing uh, um, original autonomous uh, development plans on how the, the 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 regeneration of the territory and how the economy could look like once uh, the 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 factory would shut down. So people are also um, these kinds of um, 
of uh, of mobilizations have to do also with uh, the work that people do to reproduce themselves and but also the work that people do to produce an income uh mm -hmm. for themselves uh so there is plenty of this um that we can call activism and we could we could also call it uh, uh, unpaid care labor because it's a it's a it's a it's a you know, it's it's taking care of not only your own uh, home, your own house, but also of your community, of your territory, uh, and it and it's of course uh, invisibilized and and unpaid for when when it's not even uh, uh, also delegitimized and um, make it uh, and repressed, <laughs> no, <laughs> by the police. So so yeah, but I I also think that. Um, uh, you were saying in, in Europe there is not much farming. Um, that's true, but there is, let's not forget that there is still uh, uh, peasant farming, uh, people doing uh, 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 non-industrial farming in Europe. And they are, uh, in fact, we have in Europe um, um, a Via Campesina organization, a Via Campesina Europe coordination of, uh, mm. of organizations in different countries who are still defending a kind of agriculture that is non-industrial, non-toxic, and uh, also based on the principles of agroecology and food sovereignty. So to me, that is earthcare labor because those people, because doing non-industrial agriculture implies uh, to spend a huge amount of unpaid uh, labor in taking care of the soil, of the seeds, of the living organisms that make uh, for a healthy ecosystem. So that's all extra work that you have to do on the land if you decide to uh, to practice non-industrial agriculture. So no wonder that peasant farmers are organizing to make this work visible and recognized and to claim not only for their right to farm, but also uh, to um, um, to be recognized as as uh, as protectors of the environment, so the relevance of their work for a healthy planet, for a healthy climate. This is really wonderful because um, uh, it also really shifts the way we might think about labor organizing or what that might mean when we translate it to this uh, more reproductive uh, domain, and it really allows us to think kind of care and ecology in interesting ways in terms of labor and, and how that can really challenge and enrich the way we think about labor organizing in general. I think you've said uh, a lot about that already, so maybe I won't ask you to go into detail with it unless you have something very specific to say about it. Okay, yeah, no, no, I uh, I think that uh, perhaps I would just say briefly that uh, you, uh, labor organizations traditionally have organized waged labor, right, waged workers. But if we uh, understand earth care as labor, then there, there, there it, here it, 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 you know, a, a largely untapped potential for, for labor organizing opens up here to, to, you know, to expand the concept of, uh, of, uh, of labor organizing beyond the wage relation and to uh, organize workers uh, for, um, that are workers in, in subsistence, in care work in uh, in uh, in peasant farming which you know is uh, uh, also um, has been historically uh, considered as a non category because 
either you were a wage the farm worker or you were uh, um, considered like um, a, a pity capitalist. But peasant farming challenges that distinction, right? It's a way of, um, it's a form of, uh, of labor that is uh, non-waged and, uh, and autonomous somehow, but at the same time, it cannot be defined as capital. So, it, uh, you know, there is a, here a possibility if, you, if we recognize that there is uh, something that we can understand as earthcare labor, then the labor movement is, is called into action here to, uh, mm, you know, to, to reframe itself in a way to also, also as a way to, um, uh, to, uh, to better deal with the climate crisis. This goes for both the labor and the environmental movements. No, there can be a really uh, powerful kind of a challenging, mutual challenging and enrichment there. So um, we are we're really interested in in transversal and translocal struggles across ecology and care, and obviously um, your work and earth care labor just captures this very well. And so you already spoke of the um, of the translocal aspect to some extent, saying you know there are organizations like Via Campesina that reach across continents, um, you know, and span the whole globe with incredible amounts of members and very powerful kind of organizational forms and struggles and a very feminist ethos too. And then um, you also kind of pointed to some things to do with the transversality of some struggles that could exist across, for instance, labor and environmentalism. But I wanted to ask you in a bit more uh, detail or maybe whether you could give us some examples of how you would think about, for instance, Trans possible transversal struggles across the urban and the rural dimension in this sense. So maybe the more kind of urban environmentalism and, um, and you know, the struggles for earth care that come from, mm. from the rural dimension. Mm. And maybe also if you have some ideas about the translocality of these struggles, like what kind of networks exist or how do we think the way that these struggles connect across places and especially like across places that are... Um, like the global north and the global south, if you like, across places that are traditionally quite separated. Um, it's a very broad question, but uh, if you have any <laughs> reflections, yeah, no, no, it's a it's a very useful question. I think this is the question that we uh, need to ask at this point in history. No, how to pull together all our struggles, and when I say all our struggles, I mean all the struggles that are relevant to climate justice so i see now the the, the front let's say and it's and this is again a, a, a um, suggestion that again that comes from from ecofeminist scholarship and and uh, and from maria saleh also um that there is a, you know there are now two blocks no, on one side, there is in, when it comes to the climate uh, issue, of course, uh, and one is the hegemonic block of green, uh, the green economy, green growth, and the United Nations uh, approach uh, um, to, and also the the various COP uh, negotiations that basically revolve around uh, an idea of um, basically of financializing the ecological crisis making it uh, an opportunity for uh, uh, for uh, for for growth for accumulation uh, etc 
Um, but on the other side, but this is the hegemonic block. But then this doesn't mean where you have hegemony, you also have counter hegemony, no? And so there is a counter hegemonic uh, uh, block, says uh, says uh, Salle and Goodman uh, in an article they published right after the Earth Summit um, in Rio de Janeiro, 2012. Right, right. Uh, 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 after the Rio Plus 20 summit. And they said um, uh, there, there is here a counter-hegemonic block that is becoming self-conscious. Uh, and this and this counter-hegemonic block is made of a confluence, a convergence of so many different struggles that uh, reject that what they have in common is rejecting the, this master model of um, of green growth and, uh, and financialization of ecological crisis. And they are trying to, um, uh, you know, elevate on one side their experience of ecological crisis. So, for example, if you are an indigenous uh, movement, indigenous communities have been um, been on the front line, right, of uh, uh, of uh, forest fires, for example, in the Amazon, or situations that are like that, that are related to uh, climate catastrophes and ecological global ecological crisis. Uh, paying the price themselves, uh, or peasant farming. Peasant farmers have been, you know, uh, also very much affected by climate change, uh, uh, desertification, etc. So, but also elevating their own responses to these. So, their own modes of um, dealing with the earth uh, in a, in a different way, in alternative ways. So. Uh, the possibilities for for uh, for alternative, autonomous, I would say, ways of uh, of relating to uh, to the earth with respect to the the capitalist or the the, the global GDP growth, the extractivist uh, model. No, so I think that uh, w what we the challenge we are confronted with right now is really to pull uh, forces together to you know to put to pull um, together all these um, all these movements and um, that uh, are already doing it in uh, in the climate in the global climate justice uh, movement and um, and finding ways of um, um, you know of 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 um, really challenging the leadership the climate leadership that we have right now and this uh, the point is not to replace one leadership with another one but the uh, with another global leadership but but really to um um to breach in this this hegemony that is now really um taking us to towards uh, extinction if if it goes forward so we really really need to to have to elevate alternative ways of being and working and relating to the earth that, that that's the only way right to 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 respond to the crisis i think that many of the movements uh, that uh, you mentioned and that i think of uh, for example to make one concrete example i think that uh, today in the cities in cities of uh, of the global north uh, especially we have uh, food is really one um uh, one kind of uh, one issue where where urban movements and and rural movements can really work together 
And I think that's 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 why it's important that we have a, a Via Campesina coordination in Europe to tell us that uh, uh, that these are this is these are not just um, uh, um, issues from other other parts of the world, but it, there is something that is really profoundly uh, wrong, and we should do something about the way we feed ourselves in the mm-hmm. cities of the global north, and we can do it together with uh, um, uh, the peasant farmers who produce food in our own uh, territories and countries and 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 regions. So we can really work together to, to challenge the the way we we feed ourselves that was our interview with Stefania Barca for the Earthcare Fieldcast uh, and what Stefania was mentioning reminded me of the importance of uh, food prices also in a broader social and political sense so we all know in 2011 um, the different revolutions and uprisings that happened that year had part of their ground, only part of it, of course, in in uh, food becoming more and more unaffordable to a lot of people. Um, and this year, in June, the Financial Times reported a 40% jump in food prices worldwide. The UN's Food and Agricultural Organization described it as the highest jump since uh, that year, 2011. Um, so to give you some examples of what that means, is 23% rise in food prices in Nigeria, 200% in Sudan, 400% in Lebanon, And this is, of course, uh, explosive material. Um, But also in the EU, where obviously uh, that has insulated itself much more in agricultural terms, food prices have gone up uh, by 7.1%, which is double inflation. So it's eating a bigger and bigger percentage of people's incomes. And uh, as we see climate change unfolding, as we see uh, the different uh, harms caused by erosion, by uh, the impoverishment of the soil through so-called green revolution, capitalist agriculture, we will see more and more of this. So the question is, how do we feed ourselves in the future and how do we feed ourselves solidarily? So from what Boo has just said, you would think that farmers are becoming the richest people on earth, perhaps. That is, however, not the case. Um, those food hikes are not leading to increased incomes for farmers at all. We're going to be speaking about this in many of the episodes to come. And one of our key reference here for thinking, especially agroecology, as a practice that points the way out of these industrialized food systems that claim to be feeding the world, uh, but are, however, factually speaking, not actually the way the world is being fed right now or has been fed over the past centuries, because it's actually small peasant farmers that feed the vast majority of the world. And small farmers are organized across the globe via La Via Campesina, the largest social movement on the planet, um, which is also a very key referent for us. In the next episode, um, we will be talking to representatives of La Via Campesina in Romania and Austria to think about what struggles for agroecology mean in Europe, for food sovereignty, for food security and sustainability, but also for building community power and as a form of collective care. Agroecology and a social movement like La Via Campesina also point away from those kind of ideologies of blood and soil that sometimes uh, seep into sort of localisms and nationalisms around agriculture. And they build a global solidarity for local practice in a way that is very transformative and quite transversal with a lot of other movements. 
But agroecology means a lot of things, um, from small practices of peasant farming to collective food production. So in today's fieldcast, um, we will be reporting on a community-supported agriculture project just outside Vienna, the Ochsenherz Farm, which um, bridges rural and urban reproduction and movements in many of the ways that Stefania speaks about. In the conversation you're about to hear, we spoke to Tobias, who's a member and worker of the Ochsenherz uh, vegetable farm outside of Vienna. Oxenhats was founded in 2002 and it has over 300 participating members. Oxenhats is an example of community-supported agriculture, or CSA, which in German is called Solidarity Agriculture, Solidarische Landwirtschaft. This interview is an example of field casting. We recorded the interview in the field after some field work and lunch at the Oxenhats, and we started by asking Tobias what they mean when they speak of solidarity in Solidarity Agriculture. Um, well, solidarity here means many different things. In fact, we manage the vegetable farm together. So we are a group of 11 people at the moment. And we don't have something like a, a boss. Um, so we decide everything together. Um, so um, we work with sociocratie, sociocracy. Yeah, we come together once a week for small discussions and once a month for bigger discussions where we also have to, to decide things. And there's different circles uh, where people can um, participate. There's, for example, a community circle and um, they, they, have, they, they take certain decisions like how to advertise our association or... Um, Yeah, certain things that might be in their interest as well. But most of the things that we um, do here on the farm, they they let us decide because they know we like we are kind of the experts here. But um, still, there's a conversation about this all the time because we also we bring the vegetables to our members and we we get the feedback and then we also know uh, what kind of things they like, what they don't like, and it's also. Um, um, that, that's mostly about the diversity of vegetables and fruits that we want to have um, and we we try to adapt our agriculture to their needs or to their wishes another very important thing is that people can come um, and join our work um, especially on the harvest days which are um, on Thursday and in summer also on, on Monday um, there's always at least three people of our members who help to harvest um, and I think that changes a lot their, um, their, their point of view on, on agriculture and their relationship to nature for example w what I observe a lot is that people come here with no connection to nature and vegetables and stuff and And then they see it with completely different eyes. When you're just at the market and you take vegetables and there's maybe some holes uh, that some insects made, then they, oh, that's maybe not good. Can I eat it or not? And then they're here and they see, okay, that's just normal in ecological agriculture and, um, and uh, vegetables taste great. They don't do, sometimes they don't look that great like in a supermarket. But um, yeah, so they, they get to know things better they 
get an understanding for how nature works, what kind of impact our work has on nature, and um, they suddenly understand when um, when in one harvest maybe there's um, almost no carrots because there was a, a problem with a lot of insects eating the carrots or something. So, um, and this is very important for us because we we don't depend so much on a certain crop because they know um, um, we have many different crops and some work better and some don't. And if we if you work ecological, you cannot. Um, um, it's not so easy to. So I think there's a lot of understanding uh, here and we can give vegetables to our members that would never go into the supermarket or nobody would buy them. And um, so we don't have to waste so much vegetables. Yes. And uh, one more thing maybe about solidarity. Um, we don't have prices for the vegetables. We, we are an association and people pay a monthly uh, contribution. And um, we can decide how to use this money. So we try to take decisions um, where is the money needed. This gives us a lot of freedom and it helps that we are not so much dependent on certain crops. Oxenherz employs several people part-time and full-time. Tobias, for instance, is a part-time employee at the time that we spoke to him. It is organized via a board, a Vorstand, um, that is composed of workers and ordinary members. So this is how decisions are made. And um, the land that the farm is on has different owners. There are four main zones. One of them is owned by an institution, Institut Keil. Um, another one is owned by the Munus Stiftung, a foundation that buys land to give to solidarity-based and social projects for free. And another part is owned by other private owners that give it for free. And they rent a fourth part from a private farmer. It's very difficult to access land for farms like Ochsenherz. In the area that it's situated, there is a lot of speculation. Uh, people would like to claim this land for building projects. And so um, Tobias says um, that this makes it very complicated for them to plant trees or make water holes for animals, um, so to have any long-term projects on the land. And so this question of land ownership and also of land grabs, corporate land grabs, is one that we will be returning to um, throughout our conversations in this fieldcast, because it very much affects um, agroecology. So then we asked Tobias what networks of solidarity farms exist in Austria and whether Ochsenherz is part of some networks or association of such farms. There is a network. Um, one that we are active in is uh, Solavi Life, uh, Solavi Leben. Um, and we, we try to get together with other Solavis. I think we're the, the oldest uh, Solavi in, in Austria. Um, but there's many new ones coming up and I think in, in our network there's maybe um, six or seven that are active at the moment but we know that in the past one or two years so many new Solavis came up and 
Um, there are some new ones, for example, in the in south um, that really in Villach in Klangfurt. Uh, they're getting very strong and active now, and they want to connect with us, and we try to work together. And also Overtura that we talked before, for example, we try to work together, um, sharing the uh, our routes that we have to go for bring the vegetables to Vienna. So when we whenever we have the same route, we we take the boxes, their vegetable boxes, with us in our truck or the other way, so we can um, we have less kilometers to go and. Yeah, we support each other and they give us um, some of their crops and we give them some of our crops and mm -hmm. so and that would be great if more Sulavis come up and want to connect on this area because we are getting stronger like that. And what about smaller um, individually or uh, family owned farms we asked to be us smaller peasant farmers um, do they also have links to neighboring farmers? I think they're Certainly there are some connections, because many machines that we use uh, or that we need just once a year, maybe uh, we ask some farmers that we know, can we borrow it? And sometimes we pay for it, sometimes we get it for free or, or so. Um, and especially um, those who work here for a longer time, they, they have those connections. So we, we use that a bit. Um, But like for the really small smallholders, like I come from a, a smallholder farm. Um, I wanted to ask one question: How do you see the wider political and ecological mission of Solavis? From my point of view, we we are part of a big movement. I think um, the Solavis um, is one concept that can really work in future for. Um, for supplying many people with healthy vegetables and in an ecological, sustainable way. Mm -hmm. um, and it also improves social structures. It improves that people get an awareness for nature and everything. Um, so I think this could be a part of a solution for kind of also fighting climate crisis. Um, I don't think it's the only solution. I think there's many. But I think we can be part of it and that's also why some of us also try to connect a lot with other Solavis and um, yeah, get stronger. <laughs> so that was our conversation with Tobias from the community-supported agriculture project Ochsenherz, just outside Vienna. You're listening to the Earthcare Fieldcast, a fieldcast for thinking transversal connections across ecology and care. We're interested in talking about solidarity agriculture because it connects uh, urban and rural people uh, in a solidarious way. Uh, it fi it creates uh, access to food that is not mediated by any uh, capitalist-dominated market. And it provides an exchange of, of food and connections uh, be between people that are you know, based on, on, on relations of solidarity. It reminded me a little bit of how different movements uh, across history in more extreme situations have, have tried to handle the question of food, like third world liberation movements, building connections between peasants and, and urban people and workers in the cities and so on. Uh, not just in, in order to get as many people on board as possible, but also to, to make sure that there was a food supply for the people in struggle. Um, in an example closer to Austria, we can we can talk about the Danish cooperative movement that started food co-ops 
about 100 years ago and described them as material strike funds, which meant when they engaged in, this, in the strike, they would have access to food, not just the money uh, that they would have in their strike funds, but they would have material resources uh, in the shops, in the food co-ops that they could use in order to, to get through the strike uh, successfully. Uh, it's interesting to speculate whether uh, community-supported agriculture or Solidarische Landwirtschaft could play uh, a similar role in the struggles and the crisis of the future. And um, we have here also a form of collective earth care labor um, that tries to grow an alternative model uh, of food production and of valorizing and organizing labor in the global north. Um, we'll be hearing about a similar initiative that is establishing um, an umbrella organization for collectively buying and um, running farms uh, in Germany, the Acker Syndicat, uh, in one of the coming episodes. Um, the Acker Syndicat, for instance, stems from the Mietshäuser Syndicat. Um, so um, it very much learns from the housing movements uh, and politicizes questions of land ownership in ways um, that are a good example of what we mean when we talk about transversal struggles across ecology and care and other movements. Um, so they build alliances across different social movements um, with struggles for reproduction. Um, building collective power and infrastructures that can sustain movements and communities. So earth care, as much as agroecology can mean a lot of things, can be organized in a lot of different ways. Um, and our aim with this podcast is to understand how some of these questions translate also across the global north, the global south, east and west, and different experiences of social movements. You can find us on SoundCloud and Roar magazine, where our episodes are featured next to the Spadework uh, podcast, the podcast about organizing. And you can also hear more about our research at the website of the MOVE Research Project at the University of Jena. You can follow us on Twitter at EarthCareFieldCast and tune into our next episodes, which will be out anytime soon. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha